You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Happy Friday. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Ed, we'll dig into the details coming to light amid Google's antitrust trial. We'll dive deeper into that and get a look at big tech's performance this week. And how Huawei's surprise comeback marks a new phase in the tech cold war. We'll have the latest on the US and China's battle for technological dominance. That's ahead. Plus, we'll get a read on the state of crypto one year since FTX's collapse and as the co-founder of Three Arrows Capital is detained trying to leave Singapore. But first, let's check in on these markets, including crypto. But I'm looking at the Nasdaq. Actually coming off of its highs, we're up more than 1.4% in earlier trade. The mood dips a little bit on the back of, well, the strike still being protracted and shifting up a gear when it comes to the auto sector. But when you looked at some of the inflationary pressures, particularly the preferred gauge from the Fed, PCE, actually looking like inflationary pressure just easing off a bit. So we're up 6 tenths percent. The two-year yield dips down, only by two basis points. But still, we're now at 5.04, let's call it, on the two-year. Bloomberg dollar index bounces off of its lows, but we're still off by about tenth of a percent. So I think that's helping risk risk appetite today across the board. Moving on, have a little look at what's happening on individual areas, asset classes. I bring you crypto because as the dollar is lower, so too is Bitcoin. So actually risk aversion when it comes to the world of crypto. We're basically though bouncing around a certain area of trade. 26,870. Look, we've been really range bound at the moment, Ed, but go into the, the micros, the individual moves when it comes to stocks. Yeah, there's no sort of hyperbolic or standout mover. I know that we're going to be looking really closely at Google and and the government's antitrust pursuit of Google in the search context throughout the show. That stock a little bit softer, two-tenths of a percent in the session. Bloomberg had reported, citing sources, that back in 2020, Apple was considering buying Bing from Microsoft, that search engine. That's kind of played into what's happening in the courts with the testimony we've had from Apple executives about the relationship with Google and search. That stock, seven-tenths of a percent higher. Not saying there's a causal relationship there, but it's just interesting to see Apple up for a second day. I actually want to go back to the index level because there's a lot going on right now. We're kind of modestly higher on the week on the Nasdaq 100, around half a percentage point or so. But we're snapping, as it stands, three straight weeks of declines on the Nasdaq 100. And we're passing economic data. We're thinking about, well, if the Fed leaves rates higher for longer... 
does that make mega caps attractive in the scheme of things? NASDAQ 100 up six tenths of one percent on the week, but actually September has been a bit rough for technology in, in general. And I cited the case of Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple's actually down quite a lot from its July peak. What's going on here, Cara? Yeah, let's ask someone who knows, who's going to get us a broad investing outlook. Sarah Dasmani is with us, portfolio manager at Martin Curry, who's head of global long-term unconstrained invest- investing. It's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What do you make of the landscape right now? There are headwinds when it comes to regulation. There are headwinds when it comes to macro environment, when we're thinking of inflationary pressure. Can technology still be an area to be allocating, over-allocating to? The short answer is yes. We're very positive still on technology, but you have to be very selective. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, you have to have the valuation discipline always, but more so at this stage in the cycle when we're heading into a potential risk of slowdown or potential recession. Uh, That uh, discussion around recession risk has uh, receded for this year, but we believe that when we're looking into 2024, there are headwinds that could uh, make uh, the economic landscape more uncertain. Notably, we've got the U.S. economy is uh, grappling with rates that have uh, increased quite rapidly. We've got the Chinese economy as the second largest economy globally that is uh, starting to lose momentum and there's uncertainty about next year after the initial recovery that we've seen this year. So there are a lot of things to grapple with uh, on the economic front. You've grappled for years before. We've had downturns. I know you come from very senior roles at BlackRock. You waded through 2008 financial crisis. You've been there, done that. And therefore, with that sort of mindset, do you have to be allocating into mega trends? Do you have to be thinking about valuations, even with the optimism around AI? I mean, is NVIDIA just too, too extraordinarily highly valued now? Yeah, so there are a few things that we'd want to highlight. Firstly, on valuation, we want to remain disciplined. So we use a a discount rate that is uh, capturing some of the potential for rates to be longer, uh, higher for longer. So we've got an assumption of 5% uh, for our risk-free rate in the long term. Uh, And this is something that we've been uh, assuming for a long time. So even when rates were at zero, close to zero, negative in some economies 18 months ago, we use the, the assumption that uh, monetary policies would normalize and rates would go to initially 4%. And then last September, we increased our assumption to 5%. And that was on the basis of uh, an assumption that inflation was going to be stickier and longer lasting. Uh, So we're assuming a long-term inflation in our models of 3%. So that's on the economic side and on the valuation front. Uh, Then in terms of mega trends, you're absolutely right. The way we look at uh, opportunities going forward is looking at three mega trends, demographic changes, future of technology and resource scarcity. And these are mega trends we'll be talking about for the next decade, two decades, three decades. They're here to stay. There are themes that are evolving within those mega trends, and AI is an important one in particular. Uh, but generally speaking, that permits us to put uh, our client strategies on long term structural growth opportunities looking forward rather than looking backwards. Then, on to your third question, which is around NVIDIA and AI and uh, valuation around that. Our view is that you have to focus on companies that have a profitable uh, profile. Uh, We look at that as companies that have high returns on invested capital, improvement in returns, as well as an attractive gross profile. And we like that gross to come from revenues, not just profits. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a company like uh, NVIDIA, we forecast uh, sales growth at NVIDIA of about 30% annualized over the next five years. And when you look at the bottom line, we're looking at closer to 40% annualized over the next five years. So then when you're looking at the valuation of the stock, even just taking the PE, the P, a P 
roughly 12 months forward of about 30 times. You look at a company on a P to earnings growth ratio over the next five years uh, of less than one. So that to us, as a rule of thumb, uh, can argue that NVIDIA still has strong valuation support. Uh, Zaria to Dad in San Francisco, it's good to see you and thank you for making it through the storm in New York City to join us on the program. On that assumption that you just outlined, I think it's so interesting because there's an element of surprise that some of the other mega caps, entrenched market positions, big balance sheets, also get hit right, that you outline this, this assumption that the rest of the market has higher for longer. Does the case for being overweight a name like Apple or another mega cap hold up in a world where treasuries are pushing 5%? Do you see what I mean? Yes, you're absolutely right, Hayad. Um, so there's a few things to bear in mind. Yes, uh, quality growth companies uh, such as Apple, such as NVIDIA, uh, which we define as high returns, high growth profile generally, uh, tend to uh, be impacted negatively by rising rates or rising rates expectations because these are long duration names. But there's a few aspects to mention. Uh, firstly, as you've got rising rates, you've got a potential risk of uh, economic cycle turning more negative. And in that instance, we want to have companies that have both uh, structural growth exposures uh, because that permits them to generate their own weather uh, at a time when uh, growth could be challenged at the economic level. Uh, secondly, companies that have strong balance sheets, because if we're heading towards a sharp slowdown or potential risk of recession, uh, you want companies that have uh, solid balance sheets. Thirdly, companies that have pricing power, uh, because in a higher inflation for longer environment, companies with pricing power will be able to better protect their margins. Uh, and fourth, companies that have uh, resilience in terms of earnings downgrades uh, because we still have a view that there's going to be ongoing earnings downgrades so we want to be in companies that either resist those downgrades or are able to actually uh, quite uh, at the opposite surprise on the upside and so when we look across some of the technological landscape we do find companies that have all those characteristics and that's the ones we want to focus on so yes nearer term the market will always have the knee-jerk reaction of selling down or selling out of quality gross companies as rates increase because of the, them being longer duration and therefore more sensitive to rates. But as you think about the second round effect of higher rates bringing potential risk to the economic cycle, you want to be in exactly those companies that can weather that storm. Uh, Zeri, we've gone so macro. I, I just want to go micro for a minute because I know you, you follow NVIDIA very closely. The news 24 hours ago was that France's regulator raided NVIDIA's Paris offices in a sort of antitrust action. Does something like that concern you? We did uh, see that there was that, uh, that anti antitrust raid. Uh, at this stage, we're still taking stock of that news. Uh, we do have uh, a consistent assessment of uh, companies in terms of uh, risks. And in the company risk section, we have an element of regulatory risk assessment. Uh, we rate uh, our companies from one to five, one being low risk, five being high risk. And in the case of NVIDIA, we have a risk uh, rating on the regulatory side of three, so neutral generally. So we're going to be uh, keeping an eye on this uh, specific news, but at this stage, uh, we uh, are not able to comment any further. You can go so global for us, though, and I like that you mentioned China as a macro headwind. China on the geopolitical and micro perspective as well is going to be impacting the likes of NVIDIA, of, well, any company, Tesla, with an exposure to China. How do you think about that in your risk modeling? 
It's an important focus for us. So you asked earlier about uh, mega trends, but within those mega trends, there are themes, and there are uh, eight themes that we particularly focus on uh, going forward in the midterm. Four of them are actually related to that technological and uh, potential geopolitical uncertainty. Mm. And the biggest one is what we label technological and geopolitical fragmentation. And that comes from that risk around Taiwan and uh, the China uh, ambitions around Taiwan, uh, the US and the European approach to that territory, uh, the need to actually uh, manage that geopolitical risk by the governments and therefore uh, the US encouraging TSMC to build a plant in their territory, Japan doing the same, we believe Europe will be doing the same. That's leading to uh, technological fragmentation. There are potential uh, challenges from that for companies like TSMC, but there are also opportunities. So for companies like ASML, we believe that that technological fragmentation will be a benefit because where they were shipping their tools to Taiwan, they'll be shipping some to each of those territories as those factories become live. And that will create some uh, uh, boost to the top line as well as scale economies, which will also enhance the profitability of that company. From European chip equipment makers to the big players in the US and more globally, what a great conversation. Sarah Dosmani, we thank you so much, of course, from Martin Curry. Thank you. Antitrust. The trial, it is underway with the latest piece of evidence from the Justice Department saying that a senior Google executive once likened the company's search advertising business to selling drugs. Now, there is nuance to this, and we're talking about an executive, yeah. Michael Rozak, who's vice president for finance at Alphabet's Google, Ed. And he's made the claim that, look, this was actually hyperbole, exaggeration. This was all done for a course yes. in communications. This is not true and I was not sending it to others, but still, this was a piece of evidence. And it's actually getting very murky, isn't it, as to what evidence should be shown. It's uh, arguments coming from both sides as to what should be made public. So it's notes that Michael Rosak's made in a 2017 internal presentation, ironically on communications, but the, yes. the, his point was that you can focus on the supply side, the advertisers, not necessarily the end users, in much the same way that if you're in the cigarettes industry, which was the analogy that he made, you know, you, you're focused on the selling, the advertising, not the consequence to the end user. That's the point he was trying to make. But it a bit of a statement, isn't it? Yeah, and perhaps, as he trying to claim, an exaggerated one. Exaggerated one, indeed. Okay, let's keep the conversation going on, on the antitrust action against Google and bring in uh, Adam Kavakovich, who's the CEO and founder of the Chamber of Progress. Where we're at, the latest conversation is around the dominance of search. And, and we, you know, it's important to point out this is in the context of a trial brought by the government. But what have you learned this week about how dominant Google is in the search market? Well, we're also only in week three of 10, and it's sort of hard to believe because we still have a lot of trial ahead of us. I think this week was bookended really by two main uh, aspects of testimony. The first part of the week was really about Apple. Eddie Q from Apple testified earlier in the week, and he the focus of his testimony was that Apple has picked Google as its search default because it thinks that Google's results are the best. Um, but even though Google's deals with Apple have been kind of the center of this case, there's another company that kind of looms over this whole case, and that's Microsoft. DOJ has argued that Bing is Google's only real competitor in general search, and that the reason it hasn't done better is because of Google's search default deals. And Bing would probably be the biggest winner uh, if the DOJ won this case. Later in the week, 
we saw two separate Microsoft executives testify at the trial. And in their testimony, it kind of came out that Microsoft has underinvested in Bing compared to Google's investments. And they also acknowledged even though Windows sets Bing as the default search engine, most Windows users actually quickly change their default search from Bing to Google. So that kind of undermined aspects of the government's argument that search defaults are really sticky and hard to switch. But the real main event is probably uh, Satya Nadella from Microsoft CEO. He'll be testifying next Monday. And uh, But as I said, this is our seven more weeks of this trial. That will hmm. be a moment to watch, but there'll be a lot more moments. And I think, well, we're all fascinated by how EDQ would vindicate the billions that come towards Apple from this focus on using Google's search. But what's so interesting, what's come to light, is that at one point, back in 2020, well, Tim Cook and Satya Nadella were in rooms talking about maybe even Apple buying Bing. That, of course, didn't come to bear, in large part because the argument was it's not as good a product. But do you think that that, that really just shows the overall monopolistic environment in which we are? Do you think that ultimately this is better serving a consumer? I don't know how that plays. That and it's important to say. I think you know that came out through Bloomberg's reporting, not in court. And but I don't know how that plays because um, it, it's just uncertain. I think I don't know. It seems somewhat peripheral to me to the heart of this question. Mm. The heart of the trial is really how did Google achieve its share in in whether these search default deals were the thing or whether it was their quality. And so in a trial like this, there's sort of arguments and and things atmospherically that are kind of interesting and salacious, but I'm not sure have that much bearing on the core of the case. The other sort of big focus right now is the FTC's action against Amazon. We knew it would come. It did come Tuesday. By the way, Adam, Chamber of Progress, you represent the technology industry, right? You're essentially, essentially an industry group. So it's important to point out. But what is your assessment of the FTC's likelihood of success in this action against Amazon? Well, the interesting thing is this case probably won't see a courtroom for two years at least, um, based on the normal trajectory of these things. I think some of the, the big dynamic I notice about this case is it's really motivated by the complaints of some sellers on Amazon. Sellers are mentioned 368 times in the FTC's complaint. Consumers were only mentioned 51 times. And of course, the FTC's argument is that Amazon's behavior towards sellers has downstream impacts on consumers. But I think one of the challenges they're going to face when they finally do get to court is that Amazon has pro-consumer justifications for these behaviors. So a good example, Amazon tells sellers that if they want their products to have the Amazon Prime label, they have to be shipped through Amazon's own warehouses. And of course, some sellers don't like that. They don't like the fees. But when Amazon experimented several years ago in giving sellers the freedom to ship Prime products themselves, only 16% of the products made it to consumers in time, right? So even though sellers might complain about a rule like that, and the FTC does, those rules protect consumers. And so I think when this case finally gets to court, you can bet that that's going to be a big tension in the case, the interests of sellers versus the interests of the consumer. Adam, it's always great catching up with you. Thank you. Adam Kovakovic of the Chamber of Progress, wishing you a great weekend. Meanwhile, coming up, well, we're not only discussing regulation here in the U.S., but also let's go global as well. U.S. curbing China, the chips there. But it hasn't actually stopped from developing surprisingly advanced technology in that country. We'll bring you the details from today's big take. Yes, we're talking Huawei. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. 
That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Now, after years of geopolitical back and forth, the conflict between U.S. and China over chips is reaching a crucial moment. And Huawei is one company at the center of things. Its surprise release of the Mate 60 Pro smartphone in late August, well, it's viewed kind of as a statement to the United States, a statement that China may still be able to capable to develop advanced technology despite U.S. restrictions. It's the focus of today's Big Take. For more on the broader tensions between U.S. and China, we're pleased to welcome Mark Montgomery. He's a retired Rear Admiral and Senior Director of the Center of Cyber and technology innovation and from your perspective mark is china able to bypass restrictions do they even need to be using u.s technology can they grow it at home now in a more advanced manner than we thought well first uh, caroline thanks for having me and that's a great question i think it's probably a mix um first we do have to continue to uh you know put in place uh uh, export controls and other uh, and other um, uh, policy levers to prevent the tech the transfer technology to China. Really, to prevent their military from using dual use technology to uh, continue to build systems that place us at risk, but also to create a level playing field uh, for our companies. And this phone definitely shows that they can work their way around our export controls. Uh, there's a few areas that really worry me. Um, uh, risk five, which is the open source. Yes. Uh, uh, chip design is really getting us in trouble. Uh, Mark, I, I'm so glad you went there. Seven, seven nanometer was a surprise, right? And the chips found in the Mate 60 Pro, Risk Five, the architecture. Why is that a technological concern to you? You, you see it as a backdoor. 
Absolutely. You described it perfectly. It is a backdoor to allow um, the intellectual property work being done by engineers in the United States to be easily exported into China. It avoids uh, the export controls that we put on very specific uh, on company uh, chip uh, designs of certain sizes and the pr provision of uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, uh, you know, from co uh, companies like AMSL and others. So uh, this is allowing that intellectual property to get get back into China. And if you look at who's using the RISC-V products, yes. it is broadly these Chinese companies. M Mark, if the investigation finds breaches of sanctions, what is the remedy? What can the U.S. actually do about this? Well, I think first, put the proper export control. Where there was a gap, close the gap. And we definitely have to get more agile. I mean, our export control management, our listing of companies who have uh, made violations is extremely uh, pedestrian and, and not agile. We have to become more agile. And we can't be playing whack-a-mole with a thousand holes on the whack-a-mole grid, right? We have to more aggressively uh, determine what are those technologies we're going to limit and pass broader export controls to get it. I would tell you RISC-V is a place I'd go first. Mark, great to have some expertise from you today. Thank you, Mark Montgomery of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. From New York, from Washington, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Cara, quick check in on the markets. It is the last trading session of September. The Nasdaq 100 on a weekly basis up six tenths of one percent. We have had till this point three straight weeks of declines at the index level. And as we've discussed in the show, there's this kind of recognition that whatever the Fed does next in the moment, it's going to be a higher for longer situation with rates. And I thought that Zerid Osmani did a great job explaining how you position yourself within the technology sector on that front. But September itself has just been an interesting month, um, not just for risk assets in the equity space, but Bitcoin as well. Bitcoin is holding around 27,000 US dollars per token. And you go back to the start of the month, basically over the last 30 days or so, we've traded in this range between 26,000 US dollars per token to just above 27,000. US dollars per token. The same factors under consideration when it comes to uh, Bitcoin, our favorite risk asset, as they are in equities. But it's interesting to see a kind of less of a downward slide, I suppose, like we've seen in some of the mega cap and, and higher valuation tech stocks. Uh, sticking with this space broadly, liquidators to Three Arrows Capital said the hedge fund's co-founder, Suju, was apprehended in Singapore while trying to leave the country. This after Zhu failed to comply with a court order compelling him to cooperate with a liquidation investigation. Three Arrows Capital's trouble started with the collapse of Luna, you'll remember, and its algorithmic stablecoin UST about one year ago when the hedge fund failed to meet margin calls from its lenders, which led to its fallout. Caroline. And of course, that story continued to unravel. A few months later, it would be the turn of FTX. And of course, we're about to get a heavy-duty dose of reminding ourselves of that time because Sam Bankman-Fried is heading to trial for what prosecutors allege is one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history. Let's bring in Bloomberg senior editor Mike Reagan to take the pulse of basically how it feels in the world of digital assets right now because you've been reading and writing about one year on and it doesn't seem too upbeat. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, the headline in the story we had out today sort of sums it up very nicely. Uh, it's been miserable. Is uh, was a quote from Nico Cordiero, who's uh, the chief investment officer of a crypto hedge fund called Strix uh, Leviathan. And there's a, a variety of reasons for that. Um, I think, uh, importantly, on a personal level, a lot of people who work in crypto now or did in the wake of FTX have just really been doing a lot of soul searching. Um, you know, their friends and family reaching out to them, asking them, why are you in this business? You know, is this, isn't this just a big scam? Uh, we talked to one guy uh, named Halal Diab. He started a basically a uh, analysis tool for the blockchain. And he said, uh, he told my colleague, Anna Herrera, uh, that whenever the topic comes up, even among his family, what he's doing with his career, they just clench up. There's just this suspicion and this skepticism towards this asset class that has just gotten worse and worse since FTX blew up. And that's just sort of the personal human level, Caroline. You know, if you look at the numbers, um, the capital coming into the market has really dried up. Uh, venture capital investments in the crypto space are at about $7 billion year to date, according to PitchBook. In the heyday of 2021 and 2022, those full year values were about $30 billion. So, the, you know, that spigot of money from VC has, has dried up. The money coming in from retail investors has also dried up. So really the opportunity sets, um, more than just the human element, the opportunity sets for investors and traders in crypto uh, have really been decimated in this year since FTX blew up and went bankrupt. Bloomberg senior editor Mike Reagan with just a really must-read piece out on the Bloomberg and on .com today. Thank you very much. Let's keep the conversation going now with Aya Kantorovich, co-CEO and co-founder of Fractal, an infrastructure provider enabling institutions to clear, settle, and margin digital assets on chain. And Aya, you heard what Mike had to say. He actually made the point in the story that, yeah, Bitcoin is an example up 60% year-to-date, around $27,000 per token, nowhere near 69000 US dollars per token. This idea that a lot of these digital currencies will be in place of or alongside traditional currency hasn't quite happened. Based on everything you just heard, what do you think? I think it's important to really separate the difference between the appreciation and depreciation of these currencies and the actual underlying technology that's being built here uh, that, for example, we're working on, but also a number of players, especially after what happened with FTX in November. And I think it really emphasized the need for uh, transparency, better capital efficiency, collateral management, and operational overhead that the blockchain technology just naturally is a better fit for. And I think that that has really shown clear in the adoption of some of those infrastructure providers. Even if you look at going back to price action, if you look at, for example, MakerDAO with the Maker token appreciating 45% in the last 30 days, relative to them being able to successfully bring on uh, tokenized treasuries on chain for uh, die holders to get access to, you've seen other forms of technology just being better for uh, different forms of settlement, whether it's between bonds, FX, repo markets, Circle just announced that they are publishing or a pushing out a credit uh, protocol which will basically have repos on chain. And so I think the technology, it takes time for uh, you to build these things long term, but it's there and it's there to stay. There's no doubt we're in a bear market, but we're not going anywhere. 
Do you think, is institutional money still interested? I mean, we heard the anecdotal evidence of some people getting frustrated around their dinner table, but that doesn't speak to the fact that outside of their dinner table, they might still be able to be striking deals with really big players from names that we at Bloomberg know more of. Absolutely. I think it's fair to say that all of the large banks, both in the United States and globally, have a digital asset strategy right now, and they're all focusing on the underlying technology and how it helps with operational overhead for these banks who have you know, teams of a thousand plus people working on these specific issues where it's not capital efficient and it's very expensive. And I think specific to you know these institutional investors, um, they're staying in the space. The numbers have decreased in terms of new allocation into the space, but that doesn't discredit all of the money that has already been placed in the industry and all of the work that's being done to build these new technologies. You just used the word discredit, and I think that was like the really gut punch to everyone was that Sam Bankman-Fried discredited an, an ecosystem that people were already trying to find their comfort levels with. Do you think in a way the trial next week will help clear that air and make out that look he was doing what you could do in any industry or do you think it will re-engulf the whole crypto world and the worry that SEC, Governor, uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler has? I think a little bit of both. Uh, I think the industry is very ready to close this chapter, move on, and I think that we are going to revisit a lot of the pain and trauma that a lot of these funds and many players in the space had to deal with in November of last year that led into you know, almost a year from now. Uh, that said, and you'll see headlines on it, I'm sure Gary Gensler will reference it, in an addition to push and delay the Bitcoin ETF. That said, there are still rumors that the Ethereum ETF may get, uh, may get published in as soon as October, so next week. And so that, I think there's good news in the bad news. Uh, and again, SBF is just a person. He's a human being uh, that doesn't, again, to your point, it shouldn't discredit the underlying technology. And if anything, it should emphasize that we should put more trust into the technology versus the people managing them. A number of industry leaders and participants have been on the program with us, basically outlining what they see as a U.S. administration and federal government that is not supportive of, of the industry broadly, so they're being pushed offshore. Do you recognize that as a, as a trend or a theme? I think there is no doubt about the fact that currently if you go to geographies like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, and Southeast Asia, the risk aversion is much higher and there's higher appetite for crypto, especially with there being clear regulatory standards for how to operate a business in these jurisdictions. Uh, that said, again, referencing this Ethereum ETF, if we do get guidelines for that in the next month, I think that will really change the tone of the conversations that are happening in the United States and you're starting to see that already with just markets. Overall, implied volatility in Ethereum is up this week with institutions trading around that potential rumor of the ETF approval. And you're seeing that this week was actually a very big call option by uh, for institutional investors. And so that's really exciting as we look into Q4. I let's end on a, on a positive note. It's Friday. There does seem now to be potential for a lot to, to be approved, a lot to happen. The question that the market keeps asking is, do regulators approve all of these proposed products all at once so that they have a fair footing, or do they stagger them? And I wondered if you had an opinion on that. 
from my perspective, it has to be all at once. You really shouldn't be favoring different products in the market. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that you're waiting to get all of these approvals in. Uh, you know, whether they choose to stagger or approve them, either way will be really good reflection for the market at large and will mean that institutions at, you know, who are comfortable trading through their counterparties, whether it's banks or asset managers, will finally be able to access this underlying asset class, which has outperformed the market uh, year to date. Aya Kantorovich, great to have you here with us. Thank you from Fractal. Meanwhile, coming up, more on the potential U.S. government shutdown and another industry it could be impacting. We'll talk about defense tech next. More on that from Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Talking Tech, and first up, NVIDIA may be the target of an antitrust inquiry in France. The Wall Street Journal reports that French enforcers raided offices of a business suspected of engaging in, quote, anti-competitive practices in the graphics card sector. It's important to note that the agency did not name NVIDIA in its statement. The move follows a June report published by the agency on competition in the cloud computing market. NVIDIA also declined to comment. 
And the U.S. Commerce Department is setting aside $500 million in government grants for smaller chip suppliers. The funding is open to projects that cost less than $300 million. The application process is also designed to be less burdensome for some of those companies. It's part of an effort to beef up domestic semiconductor production. Plus, the United Autos Workers Union aren't the only union coming to blows over labor um, construction. Workers responsible for building TSMC's Phoenix, Arizona plant are also seeking project labor agreement. The contract would provide clarity over how the parties would address safety, training and other issues as they arise before starting work on TSMC's second site. In response, TSMC says they keep an open channel of communication with all our construction partners and that also includes the unions. Caroline. Well, aside from union focus, let's get back to the U.S. government more broadly. Fast approaching yet another shutdown unless Congress enacts a temporary spending bill before the new fiscal year starts on, well, October 1st this weekend. A shutdown could halt many facets of the U.S. ecosystem, from services possessing your passports, your visas, oversight of financial swap markets, economic reports from the Labor Department, some IRS services, and potentially it could also impact the sector of defense technology. That's why we're going to focus for a moment. Pleased to welcome to the show Jane Lee, Chief Government Affairs Officer at Rebellion Defense and also a former senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader on, on budget, on economic policy, on these very matters. And therefore, Jane, I'm, can you just steer us a little bit as to how this could, in your mind's eye, affect innovation and indeed defense? Absolutely. Defense has become more about code than combat these days. And um, we actually at Rebellion Defense, we're a founding member of the Software and Defense Coalition, a group of uh, 40 CEOs and tech founders that are trying to push for faster adoption of emerging technology and bring the best tools and technology to the warfighter. This isn't about taking the operator out of the equation, but enabling their ability to do their mission better or faster and enable with technology. Um, you know who's not shutting down the doors? It's China. And they're investing uh, so much money into AI, into technology, into enabling the uh, uh, platform performance. And so it's really important. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that our government remains open. Uh, Jane, I want to bring you the stat of the day, but it shout out to Bloomberg Scarlet Foo, who's been writing about this. The U.S. government is currently spending more to pay its interest on the $33 trillion of national debt than it does on national defense. That, according to the, the U.S. Treasury's latest monthly statement. What's the lesson we take from that? Ultimately, there does need to be structural reforms moving forward. But in the near term, it's about keeping our doors open. Again, our foreign adversaries are not going to be resting and in terms of stopping their investments while our government waits and deliberates on funding the federal government. And so, again, we need to join together in terms of the short-term deadline here to allow for an opportunity to move forward, find consensus, and again, keep our doors and agencies operating. If there was a temporary shutdown, can you just go into intricacies of how this affects companies, small and large? What happens? What's put on ice? How does it actually really hurt them? 
Sure. Um, in terms of small businesses, I, I'm concerned that actually the defense industrial base isn't prepared for a shutdown. The last shutdown where Defense Department was materially impacted in terms of their operations was actually a decade ago in 2013. In 2018, the shutdown only lasted for a weekend. In 2019, the shutdown uh, was the longest shutdown in U.S. history, but DOD actually already had enacted appropriations. So if the shutdown is lengthy, ultimately there's going to be a major squeeze on small businesses. Back in 2013, the last major shutdown, GAO and congressional uh, reports looked at the impacts of small business operators that had federal contract with the federal government. And there's a material impact on their pocketbooks, their cash flow, um, and their ability to do operations. They had to furlough employees. Ultimately, there was a decline in small business contracts by a third. Spending on small business engagements by DOD actually dropped by 40%. So there is material impact here for shutting our doors. Jane, I'm sorry to jump around here. I'm just fascinated by your, your background, your CV, okay? So you've been in economic affairs and policy on the government side, okay? Now you're thinking about defense and technology. And Caroline and I always talk about the, the artificial intelligence in terms of the moral debate. The industry is worried that the AI gets used for defense or in the defense use case. But you're also saying that China is spending it in this area, so the US should too. How do we balance that, that moral conundrum out? Again, in terms of the, the pacing challenge of China, they made it very clear that in terms of emerging technology for AI, for cloud computing, for hypersonics, for directed energy, they want to be dominant by 2030. And they have, again, uh, amassed their investments, their all of their resource to that particular goal. And so trusted, safe AI, um, for example, the debate that's happening right now is absolutely important. We have to make sure, again, that we're focusing in the near term here about agency operations. This is about keeping our doors open just to do business and keep our investments going because they will be material impact. It slows down the capabilities to the warfighter. There is, again, outcomes here that I think are unintended consequences of a shutdown. Jane Lee, Chief Government Affairs Officer at Rebellion Defense. Great to have you on the program. These are difficult uh, considerations and conversations that we're having. New York Fed President John Williams making statements at the moment and the market not liking all of it. In particular, the fact that he expects a need for restrictive policy for some time. Basically, interest rates to remain high for longer. We're looking at an S&P that has eroded all of its gains for the day at the moment, Ed. So some risk aversion, even though he also goes on yeah. to say that the Fed is at or near peak level of interest rates. But valuations, they're still hot in some areas of the market. Yeah, that's putting it lightly. Indeed, the race for AI chatbots is pretty hot right now. Character AI is a startup offering chatbots that can impersonate virtually anyone or anything. And it's in early talks to raise new funding that could value it at more than $5 billion. That's according to Bloomberg sources. I want to bring Bloomberg's Rachel Metz in, who leads our, our coverage of AI. And, and Rachel, this is one I reported out with the team, right? It's surprising because of where Character AI is a company and, and also in development of this technology is. What is Character AI? Does it make any money? Is it valued at $5 billion? 
Well, let's let's save the valuation for last, but um, we can start with what it is and what it does. Um, Character is a really interesting company. The people behind it used to work at Google, and they did some pioneering work in AI there. And they built a large language model, so a, a model that you can uh, feed text to, like a text prompt, and it will generate text in response. Uh, what they built is a large language model that its users, Character AI users, can then customize in basically infinite ways. They can give it some more dialogue to refer to, give it some details, uh, and then you'll see if you go on their website, they have all these different chatbots that people have made. Some of the most popular ones are referring to video game characters. So then you can, other people can interact with them. It's pretty interesting. There's Mario and other ones. And I, I mean, I was messing around with one that claimed to be a gassy unicorn at one point. <laughs> that was pretty fun. Pretty sure your kids would have loved that. Why then raise money and where is the revenue opportunity? Okay, that is a really good question or two really good questions. So. Why raise money? What they're doing is super expensive. And for the most part, they're not charging people for it. It costs a lot of money both to train this kind of AI system and to operate it. So every time somebody types in something to the Mario character or the gassy unicorn character, <laughs> that, is, that, that is essentially, that is costing the money a little bit, you know, a tiny bit of money at a time, but it adds up very, very quickly. Right. And they recently introduced a service where users pay, I think it's $10 a month if C plus is the service. And that gives you faster access because what users had been experiencing, like I did when I reported a story on them recently, yeah. is sometimes the website can't load your the service just isn't quite oh, working so having to so wait you for your pay, gassy unicorn <laughs> i know there there aren't many worse things in the world yes rachel metz brilliant story that does it for this edition of bloomberg technology ed yeah check out the podcast recap show and stay safe caroline stay dry out in new york city to address our new climate reality the world needs radical solutions Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.